Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Alex Narasta, and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst here at Cato. Thank you for joining us today to be with Clint Bollock, one of the distinguished authors of Immigration Wars, Forging an American Solution, that he wrote with uh, former Governor Jeb Bush, uh, who was the governor of Florida. Uh, Immigration uh, Wars was released in March to great fanfare, and I say a little bit of controversy as well, uh, something that usually boosts book sales, so I hope that the authors aren't too upset about that. Now, that March release was also, um, it also doomed an earlier planned Cato book form where we had about 400 people RSVP'd. Um, that was canceled because of the federal government's overreaction to a snowstorm that ended up being a rainstorm. But um, I want to begin by saying that, you know, immigration wars, it starts with a great thesis that uh, immigration is vital to America's future. It fuels its economic growth, its creative uh, vibrancy, its cultural growth, and that government policy should better reflect those realities. Now, the book outlines a six-point strategy for reworking our country's policies that begins with erasing a lot of the outdated immigration structures codified about 60 years ago and essentially starting from scratch. Um, I'm happy to say that the current immigration reform bill, which the Senate voted on yesterday to debate, has actually incorporated several features of the policies that uh, Clinton Governor uh, Bush recommended in their book. So that uh, must be especially gratifying for you both. Now, this is an especially important uh, book forum for Cato, as we have long written about uh, the positive benefits of a more open and freer immigration policy one that is consistent with American ideals of individual liberty, uh, free markets, and our traditional openness toward immigrants, something that, unfortunately, the government has reversed in some uh, recent decades. In many ways, Immigration Wars tries to reach back to America's traditions to find guidance about how to solve today's problems with, the immigra with immigration. Now, after this brief introduction, uh, Mr. Bollock will talk about his book and ideas in some detail, and then we will conclude with questions from the audience and a delicious lunch. So without any further delay, let me introduce our well-known author. Clint Bollock is the director of the Goldwater Institute Center for Constitutional Litigation in Phoenix, Arizona, a legal pioneer in a number of areas. He is perhaps best known for his leadership in defending state-based school choice programs and has argued and won significant cases in both the state and federal courts winning school choice victories in the Supreme Courts of Wisconsin, Ohio, and Arizona, as well as before the Supreme Court of the United States. He has also set landmark precedents defending freedom of enterprise and private property rights and challenging corporate subsidies and racial classifications. Apparently, challenging policies like racial classifications and school policies were not controversial enough for him, so he decided to co-author a book challenging uh, the current immigration policy. Before joining Goldwater Institute in 2007, Clint was co-founder of the Institute for Justice and former president of the Alliance for School Choice. Without further ado, Clint Bollock. Thank you, Alex. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute, uh, to my friend David Bose, who took a day off of his sabbatical to, to come here today, Roger and so many others. Um, 
I'm really proud that uh, my son Todd Bullock uh, works here. And where is Todd? I, there he is in the back. Uh, I never, never thought that one of my kids would end up working here, but I'm, I'm really, really proud that he's ended up here. Um, thank you all for being here today. Hello to the folks who are watching this by live streaming. Um, I first want to say a few words about the Cato Institute's role, and in particular, Alex's role in this. Um, the debate would not be where it is today without the Cato Institute. And this is one of the occasional wars uh, between the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. Um, I have a tremendous amount of affection for Heritage. Um, in fact, I met my wife at the Heritage Foundation, so uh, I will always have affection for it. Uh, but this is one of those issues where uh, the dichotomy between Cato and Heritage could not be greater. Um, but this is, this is an area where Cato has not just completely kicked Heritage's butt, um, but it is one where it preemptively kicked its butt. <laughs> I have never seen before a pre-buttle to a study that hasn't come out yet. And um, that is because the Heritage uh, Foundation's uh, errors on this issue, uh, on the economics of immigration, were well known and, uh, uh, and were so severe that Cato preemptively uh, struck out on it. And Heritage just went ahead and, and did it anyway. Um, so uh, I, I really want to applaud Cato's leadership on this. I truly wish that, uh, that Governor Bush and I had been able to have our forum here when it was originally scheduled. Uh, you may remember that the, the uh, term that was given to this epic storm that was going to be coming through was Snowmageddon. And as I was stranded here temporarily in Washington, D.C. and reading the Washington Post, I was bemused to read an article saying that one of the effects of the sequester was that weather forecasts were not going to be as accurate as they normally were going to be. So that damn sequester, you know, it'll teach us to cut the federal government's budget. Um, so instead of uh, Jeb being, uh, being here today, I, I will uh, tell a couple of stories about Jeb. Jeb Bush is an extraordinary guy, and I say this as someone who was not, um, to put it mildly, the hugest fan of, of the Bush presidencies, but um, uh, Jeb Bush and I go back to uh, the days when he was first elected governor of Florida, and I had the honor of helping to uh, design and defend his school voucher program, which was the first step in, in completely revolutionizing and improving Florida's K-12 education system. And we've known each other uh, pretty well since that time. Uh, but I, I thought I would tell two anecdotes about Jeb uh, that explain why he fits into a very unusual category for me, which is the category of politicians that I've never had to sue. Um, Jeb, uh, the, the basis for writing this book actually occurred. Uh, I've always been interested in immigration policy, always wanted to write about it. And I knew that Jeb and I shared basic uh, uh, beliefs in common about immigration. But it wasn't until a trip that he made to Arizona 
a little over a year ago that the idea of the book was launched. And he came to speak on a completely unrelated issue and in Arizona. And when he was finished talking about this issue, which had to do with labor unions, uh, this being Arizona, the first question was, of course, about immigration. And it was the host who asked the question, and he said, Governor, what can we do to stop the hordes of people pouring over our southern border and committing crimes and going on welfare and destroying the state of Arizona? What can we do to stop that? And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I know what Jeb's thinking right now, but what is he going to say? And he thought about it for a moment, and then he said to the, to the questioner, he said, let me reformulate your question. What is it that we can do as Republicans to avoid committing suicide by continuing to alienate people who ought to be a part of our core constituency? And every jaw in the room dropped when he said that. And I thought to myself, this is a guy who has the utter and total courage of his convictions, and I want to write a book on immigration with him. And that is where the idea of the book was born. The other anecdote uh, is a, a very brief one, and um, it, it came from when we were writing the book together. And at one point, I was looking at public opinion polling on various immigration issues, and I found that most of the policies that Jeb and I were going to promote in the book did in fact command the support of a majority of Americans. And we were chatting about this and I said, you know, there's just one issue, Jeb, on which we really don't have any room to maneuver. I said, and that is on the numbers of immigrants that will be uh, admitted into the country. As, as Alex well knows, this is a number that has stayed remarkably constant. Only nine or 10% of Americans believe that the number of immigrants should be increased. The other 90% believe it either ought to stay the same or ought to be reduced. And it's a, it's a pretty steady and, and ferocious number. So I mentioned this to Jeb and I said, you know, this probably sets some boundaries for the policies that we're gonna advocate. And his reaction was, no, we just have to convince people that we need more immigrants. And I thought to myself, this is not a normal politician. And my reaction to that is, Okay, we'll, we'll try to do exactly that. Well, I have to, to make a personal uh, confession to you. And, and for those of you who have read the book and, and read uh, my own personal introduction, this will come as no surprise. Even if the heritage numbers were correct, even if immigrants were a scourge to our economy, uh, even if they cost us massive amounts of money on net, I would still support immigration passionately. And that is because immigrants bring something intangible to this country that is absolutely priceless. And that is that they replenish the American spirit. If you want to meet someone who does not just give lip service to the basic American ideals of hard work and entrepreneurship and family and uh, opportunity and education, talk to an immigrant. Talk to, the, to an immigrant who has faced so many obstacles to come into our country to make a better life for themselves and for their family. And we need, especially in this era, we need much, much more of that. And I think that America cannot survive, its ideals cannot survive 
without the replenishment that, um, that immigrants bring to us. But of course, in addition to bringing that, they do produce tremendous tangible benefits, tangible economic benefits that we absolutely cannot live without. And yet we have this debate. It is a debate that has persisted in this country for 250 years, we have had this immigration debate. And what's remarkable about that debate is that for as much as our country has changed, the terms of the debate have not changed at all. Uh, 250 years ago, Benjamin Franklin warned about letting my ancestors in. Well, in that case, maybe he had a, had a point. But... Um, <laughs> He was warning against the Germanization of Pennsylvania, and he proclaimed that the German immigrants were no more likely to adopt our culture and our language as we were to adopt the German complexion. I'm not exactly sure what he was referring to there, but nonetheless, that very argument about acculturation, assimilation, uh, persists today, and it was as wrong then <laughs> as it is today. More recently, uh, the heir to Benjamin Franklin in this regard was my own mom, Emily Bullock. I always like to point to her as kind of the, 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 the uh, uh, epitome of, of, uh, of the folks that, uh, that we argue uh, with on immigration. My mom and I agreed on almost every issue except for immigration, and we would just go around and around on this issue. And my mom was firmly convinced that immigrants come to our country to go on welfare, to commit crimes, and that they stubbornly refuse to adopt our culture and our language. All immigrants, that is, except for the ones that she personally knew. All of them were really hardworking, upstanding people who she would be happy to welcome into the American family. And that, that is really, the, I, I think, a, a very, very typical attitude and one that we have to really overcome in trying to address our immigration issue. The fact is that, that without immigrants, certainly we would not be the richest country on earth. And uh, going forward, a lot of people are saying, well, time is, the times are different now. We really don't need immigrants uh, like we, we have in the past. I would argue that we need immigrants today more than ever before for two particular reasons, um, uh, two occurrences that, that are different than anything that's ever happened in our country before. First, our nation is experiencing a population decline. We are no longer replenishing our population. And this presents a very, very serious demographic issue. Milton Friedman once famously said, though he was very, very pro-immigration, that open borders are incompatible with a welfare state. And I think that that, uh, to, to a large extent, is true. And yet the converse is also true. We cannot keep the promises that we have made to people through our welfare state without immigrants. And I think a major example of that is Social Security. Certainly anyone who has ever attended any Cato program or read any Cato publication knows uh, the trajectory of Social Security as we face a situation where the retirement population is dramatically growing and the working population to sustain that 
is shrinking. And uh, we, we desperately need young working people, more of them, um, to keep that system going. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, the, uh, the actuary for the Social Security Administration projects that over the next 25 years, if we bring in one million young working immigrants per year, it will produce $500 billion of contributions into the Social Security system. That alone shows the vital importance of having uh, young working immigrants coming into our country. Um, in addition to that, immigrants have higher birth rates, which can help us reverse our population decline. Uh, they are far more likely to start businesses than native-born Americans. They are far more likely to have intact families than native-born Americans. And in fact, they are far less likely to go on social welfare programs during their productive years than our native-born Americans. So when you put all of that together, you have a tremendously positive impact on the economy. Almost none of that, by the way, made it into the uh, Heritage Foundation report. The second factor that makes immigration even more important than ever before is that for the first time, we are facing competition for immigrants with other countries. We have always been the magnet for the best and the brightest that the world has. And that is what has made us, uh, in, in large measure, the greatest nation on Earth. Right now, we need to be that magnet in, in more than ever because of how bad our K-12 educational system is. We are simply not producing the best and the brightest. We are not producing them. We need to import them. We all know, uh, again, anyone who's, who's read any Cato reports knows about how far down the ladder we rank in terms of math, writing, reading, science among the industrialized countries. And uh, that is not going to change anytime soon. Not only that, but we're simply not producing adequate graduates in the areas that are generating wealth. We produce only about a third of the computer science graduates that we need for existing jobs. So we really have only two choices in this area while we try to improve our K-12 education system. One is to bring the best and the brightest in. And the other is to export the jobs. And we are, in fact, doing the latter. Microsoft recently opened a facility on the Canadian side of the Washington state uh, border precisely because it was able to, to, to get access to higher skilled workers. Our post-secondary system of education remains by far the strongest in the world. And we do attract the best and the brightest to those universities. But then what do we do when they graduate? In most instances, they don't get visas to stay. So we are training, for example, Chinese students to become engineers, and they go back to China. Is that a wise investment on our part? I, don't, I, I certainly uh, don't think so. And a number of other countries are beginning to catch on and are out-competing us. Canada, for example, has one-tenth of our population and yet gives more visas to high-skilled workers than the United States does. If you go down to Chile today, 
you will see a part of Chile which is now called the Chilicon Valley. And you can guess what that is. That is an area where entrepreneurs from all over the world are welcomed into Chile and they contribute mightily to the economy. Um, so we cannot allow our clocks to be cleaned. We need an immigration system that works. And it works so poorly in the area of, of greatest need, high-skilled workers. If we do bring in a high-skilled worker and give that person a visa, a number of things happen. First of all, it costs so much money that almost the only people who can bring them in are big companies. So we don't have uh, the high-skilled immigrants working for small companies or, or for startups in most instances. We don't let them change jobs. If they change jobs, they lose their visa. And guess what? Their spouses aren't allowed to work at all. This is a really, really messed up system. And the reason it's a messed up system is that it is a system designed, it was a system created in the 1950s. Now, I was also created in the 1950s. I can't keep up with technology. Sure as heck, the immigration system is not going to be able to keep up with technology either. Now, many on the right, and this is something that I hear in Arizona all the time, and it's, it's, it's epitomized by Senator Jeff Sessions and what he's doing right now. They argue, listen, we've been sold a bill of goods in the past about how border security is going to get better. What we need to do is to secure the border first and then uh, reform our immigration system. But we're not going to improve our immigration system until the border is secured. I compare that type of logic to a doctor saying, we're not going to treat the cancer until the symptoms disappear. Because border insecurity is a symptom of a broken immigration system. And if we don't replace, if we don't reform the immigration system, we will continue to have border insecurity. A lot of uh, the border security first folks don't ask the most fundamental question. Why is it that people come here illegally? Do they get their kicks from paying some coyote thousands of dollars and risk their lives and leave their families in order to become illegal immigrants subject to, uh, uh, to being victims of crime and not being able to, to work openly in our society? Is that what they want to do? Of course not. No rational person would ever do such a thing. The reason they come illegally is because there is no way for them to come legally. And if they want to work, uh, if they want to pursue opportunities, they will, they will come illegally. Uh, the border security first folks say, you know, these folks should simply get to the back of the line like everybody else. But if there is one thing that, that I learned as I, as I studied our current immigration uh, system, it is this. There is no line. There is no line for people to get in the back of. If you do not squeeze within one of the limited number of work-based visas, if you are not eligible for political asylum, and if you don't have a family member in the United States, there is no line for you to get into.
And as a result of that, it doesn't matter how high you build the walls or how many surveillance cameras you put on the border, people seeking opportunities will come here. So uh, in my view, the best way to curb illegal immigration is to create a legal system of immigration that works for people. And when you do that, you will see illegal crossings, at least by people trying to, to come here to work, you will see that disappear. And you won't see it disappear without doing that. Now, we have not had a workable system of immigration in this country since the 1960s. And the reason that we haven't is that a fundamental transformation occurred in our immigration policy during the 1960s. That was the transformation of our system from a work-based immigration system to a family-based immigration system. And that has really not been a pronounced part of the debate. But in, in, in Governor Bush's, in my estimation, this is really the 800-pound gorilla that has to be dealt with in the immigration debate. If, for those of you who have not read the book or are not experts on immigration, I would ask each of you to think to yourself what the answer is to the following question. What percentage of the visas that are awarded to uh, foreigners every year by the United States, what percentage of them are for work or skills-based visas? What would, you, what would you think? The number is astounding. 13% of our visas are awarded for work or skills-based visas. That is by far the lowest of any industrialized country in the world. And it is far lower than it traditionally was in the United States. So who is getting the visas? Two-thirds of the visas go to family members of people who are already here. And that is because in the 1960s, we expanded the definition of family and for uh, purposes of giving preferences for immigration from the nuclear family of minor children and spouses to encompass parents and siblings. And that created the phenomenon that is known as chain migration, because the siblings then, and the parents, became entitled to preferences as well. And um, the, the result has been twofold. First of all, the dramatic number of, of family preferences has crowded out eligibility and opportunities for work-based visas. And secondly, one of the things about family preferences is that a lot of the people brought in via family preferences are not productive young workers. They're children or elderly people who are far more likely to consume social services, especially education for children, than they are to contribute to the economy. So this is what has caused a lot of the problems with our current immigration system. Now, uh, for this reason, uh, Jeb and I believe that immigration reform cannot be done in piecemeal fashion. That is what uh, House Speaker John Boehner has suggested as a possibility. We believe it all has to be addressed at one time for two reasons. One is political. You cannot get a bill through the House and the Senate signed by the president unless both sides get some of the things that they want. But the second is also practical. 
all of these pieces are, are interrelated to each other, and it is important to try to address them all together. Jeb and I suggest a number of uh, critical reforms. And first and foremost is to reduce the family preferences, to redefine family preferences to encompass uh, the nuclear family, to include minor children and, uh, and spouses. The second is probably the most obvious and important, and that is to dramatically increase the number of visas for high-skilled workers. Uh, in fact, uh, Jeb and I would have no limit whatsoever. When you look at the economic productivity that high-skilled workers uh, create, um, the estimates are that each high-skilled worker himself or herself creates an additional four or five jobs based on, on what they do. Um, the effect in the economy of, of having high-skilled workers or entrepreneurs willing to invest in the United States is just incredible. We also support dramatically increasing the number of low-skilled workers. And this is an area where a lot of people say, why on earth do we want to increase the number of people without, uh, without skills? And the answer is that there are a lot of jobs in our society that are not going to be filled unless immigrants are available to fill them. Um, this has been an area of huge academic debate until recently Alabama and Georgia sent illegal immigrants packing. And what happened in that instance is that even though the farmers raised their wages uh, that they were paying, um, native-born Americans still were not filling the jobs. Plants, uh, crops died on the vines. Downstream jobs uh, such as agricultural processing uh, went by the wayside. And the two states lost billions of dollars in gross domestic product. What ultimately had to happen is that the immigration system shifted political refugees down to Alabama and Georgia, and finally the labor needs were, uh, were ultimately met. But again, in these areas, we are faced with the prospect of either importing workers or exporting the jobs. And in the agricultural sector, we are very, very rapidly exporting agricultural jobs. Half of the apples grown in the world now are grown in China. Um, which, is, which is depressing, and a lot of agricultural uh, jobs are being exported to Latin America. So we either import Latin Americans or we export the jobs down there. Uh, beyond that, we believe that it is important to recreate the immigration line. That is, to create a system by which people who aspire to become Americans have a way to do so. And that was traditionally the case, uh, and we think that it is an important uh, part of a comprehensive immigration reform. So what should we do about the 11 million people who were estimated to be here illegally? And in this regard, Jeb and I uh, take uh, a two-part approach. First of all, for uh, kids who were brought here illegally, they, the, the so-called dreamers, we believe that these young people have committed no crime. They were brought here illegally by their parents. Um, 
and they, in many instances, know no other country. And it would be unfair um, uh, to force them to leave. So we would provide a path to citizenship for any dreamer who was brought here illegally, who has committed no crimes, and who has either graduated from high school or uh, served in the military. Um, and we would do that immediately um, and more rapidly even than President Obama has, uh, has suggested. As for the adults who are here illegally, we think that this is an area where past experience ought to be our guide. There was an amnesty in the 1980s, and we think that that, that amnesty basically sent a signal that coming to the United States illegally would not be dealt with harshly, that in ultimately it would be rewarded with an, with an offer of citizenship. And we think that that sends, uh, sends the wrong signal to people. Jeb and I would not create a path to citizenship. We would allow people who pay back taxes and, and uh, uh, pay some sort of uh, a penalty to remain here permanently, but not to have a path to citizenship. The reason for that is that we think that that is manifestly unfair to the people who have tried to come here illegally. I mentioned that there is no line to get into the United States, but there is a lottery that a lot of people don't know about. It's called the diversity lottery. And every year, millions of people from around the world apply for the 50,000 diversity slots that are available in this lottery. The chances of winning that lottery are 1 in 250. You have more luck with the DC lottery than you do with the diversity lottery. And it seems to us that if you look those people in the eye and say, you know what, we know the odds that you will ever be allowed to come to the United States and pursue your dreams are, are really close to zero. If only you had come in illegally, you'd be standing in the citizenship line right now. We just think that is, that is unfair and that it, it impairs the rule of law. Having said that, we recognize that, um, uh, that in all likelihood, any comprehensive uh, immigration reform is going to include a path to citizenship. In our view, the touchstone for that should be that it has to be easier to come here legally than it is illegally, and that there be uh, some penalties attached and, and some fidelity to the rule of law. So that brings me to the Gang of Eight proposal that is before the United States Senate right now. Now, I have to say, as someone who sues bureaucrats for a living, Pretty much any time I see a, pay, a, a bill that is 644 pages, Alex indicates that it has grown to about 1,000 pages. When I see a bill that long, it sets off an almost Pavlovian instinct in me to sue, to challenge the law, OK? I don't think there are one-page bills that are, that are well-written, much less uh, a long one. So it is an extraordinary thing for me to say that when I consider the democratic process that has produced this bill, that it is actually pretty remarkably good. Uh, certainly as a starting point. <clears throat> it addresses pretty much all of the areas that Governor Bush and I identified in our book as needing, needing reform, and all of them in a, in a positive way. It does, of course, 
lavish resources on border security. Again, we think that the border security problem will largely go away, not, not on the terrorism side, <coughs> excuse me, which is where we think that things like biometric identification for people who come into the country is, is absolutely essential. But in terms of the illegal immigrant uh, issue, we think that that will largely go away if we have a, a workable legal system. But nonetheless, to satisfy conservatives uh, who, who place a priority on this issue, I mean, it is hard to imagine devoting more resources than this bill does uh, to addressing that problem. Very notably, and this is a huge concession on the part of Democrats, and I, I give, I, I mean, it is so hard to squeeze words of praise for John McCain out of my mouth. But this is an area where I really think the Republicans uh, have, have done a, a great job in getting the Democrats to concede. Um, the family preferences, they are not reduced as much as we would like to see. But the sibling preference, uh, which is the, the leading part of chain migration, is eliminated. Um, and uh, and children, uh, unmarried children above uh, the age of 30 uh, would not be given family preferences either. Parents would be uh, continue to receive family preferences, but this is a dramatic tightening of family preferences. A very large increase in the number of high-skilled workers and the introduction of a guest worker program um, that functionally, I think, is very, very, uh, uh, very, very good. The numbers are way too low, and this is an area that Rand Paul has identified. The reason the numbers are too low is because the unions exacted their pound of flesh and kept the numbers artificially low. This is an area where I hope uh, there will be some, some changes on the, on the House side. Um, the dreamers... Uh, are given a path to citizenship. And the path to citizenship for adults who came in illegally, I really, really object to the term amnesty in this context. And there are a lot of people who will use that term uh, beyond its de def dictionary definition, and they do here. But this is much more like a criminal probation system uh, that has been set up by the bill. Basically, you have to, to pay your back taxes. You have to uh, plead guilty to having come in. You have to pay several sets of fines. You have to work continually to be eligible for citizenship. Um, it dramatically restricts the welfare benefits that you were entitled to receive during this period. And at the end of 13 years, if you managed to navigate that system, you were allowed to become citizens. Jeb and I believe that this very strongly meets our criterion of being of showing that it is easier to come legally under the system than illegally. It also the bill also creates a line for people to come to the United States, a merit-based immigration system that gives points for having been in the United States, having families here, or having special skills. And I think that that is very, very important. All in all, as 644-page bills go, this one is pretty darn good. Uh, I think that it will only improve through going through the House of Representatives and, uh, and having some additional uh, changes made.
Here is the bottom line, though, and this is the message that when I speak to mainstream conservative audiences, I like to emphasize. This is not like Obamacare, where if we kill it, then things are better. If we kill this bill, we continue to live with the worst immigration policy in the world. So this is not a choice between uh, perfection and imperfection. It is, it is a choice between setting up a, vi uh, a viable immigration system and continuing to live with the very immigration system that creates the problems that conservatives complain about. So for those who are obstructionist on this issue, they are responsible for the problems that we will continue to have if we do not change the dysfunctional system that we have. Would, do I think that we could uh, do better as a matter of theory? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Jeb and I, you know, we would obviously adopt uh, completely the program that we advocate in our book. Is that politically viable? Unfortunately, not in its entirety. This bill gets about as close as I can imagine us getting in a system in which we have a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president, and a very conservative Republican majority in the House of Representatives. So that is why I think uh, that, we, that we need to, to support this reform. For Republicans, I think that immigration is largely, getting things right on immigration is largely a matter of survival. We saw what happened in the last election. The Republican share of Hispanic vote continues to decline. Uh, it was about 27% in the last election. But something that the Republicans really haven't focused on is another uh, demographic that I, I was absolutely shocked to see. And as I was watching the returns on election night and expecting the Republican or the outer suburbs of Virginia to turn their usual red, and I was shocked to see it turn blue. And that was largely as a result of Asian immigrants turning against Republicans. A lot of people don't, when we think immigrants, we think either the, the high-skilled uh, folks coming from, from Asia, uh, from India and, and other countries, or, or Hispanics coming in. But Asian immigrants now represent the largest share of people coming in every year. So this is the rising demographic. Asians only a few years ago cast a majority of their votes for Republicans. They cast even fewer votes for Republicans this year than Hispanics did. 26% of Asian voters voted for Mitt Romney. Now think about this group as a, as a whole, and obviously it's a very, very diverse group, but as a whole, Asian immigrants are incredibly entrepreneurial. They are well-educated. They aspire to education. They are hardworking. They are family-centered, and they are faith-oriented. Can you describe a more Republican constituency than that? And yet they are turning off to Republican candidates in amazing numbers. And that suggests to me that this is not a Hispanic problem for Republicans. It is an immigrant problem for Republicans, and it is because of the, um, of the nativist tone that Republicans have perfected 
in recent years. That has got to change, and the best way for it to change is for Republicans to cease being obstructionist on immigration issues and become active partners in creating the very best comprehensive immigration reform that we possibly can. In closing, I'd like to put this issue in some perspective. We have an immigration problem. We have always had an immigration problem. And yet, as problems go, this is about the best kind of problem that we can have. Because by having an immigration problem, it means that people want to come here to the United States. East Germany built a wall not because it had people who wanted to come in, but because it had people who wanted to leave. If we build a wall, it will be for the reverse reason of keeping people out who desperately want to come in. And who are these people who want to come in? Are they people who want welfare? No, it's people who want freedom and people who want opportunity. We should tremble at the prospect that one day America will cease to have an immigration problem because people no longer want to come here. Because that will mean that we are no longer the beacon of opportunity and freedom to the world that we traditionally have been. We must get this right. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much, Clint. We're going to have some questions in a minute, but I wanted to, um, you know, go over some of the etiquette for questions. Um, please wait to be called on. Uh, please wait for the microphone uh, so everyone in the audience and online can hear you, uh, hear what you have to say, and please announce your name and affiliation. I'm not sure where the microphone is, but I'll begin with the first question um, as moderator's prerogative. You do have a and I do have a microphone, so this makes it easy. Um, I think uh, a lot of uh, left-wingers are unfairly characterized as pro-immigration. You know, there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment there, but I think it's fairly undeniable that conservatives raise the loudest voices against it. Um, can, since you're from Arizona, you live there, you're on the ground, you see this daily, why do you think it is that conservatives have taken such a negative tone and position on immigration in recent years? Well, um First of all, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a, a real mismatch. Uh, li liberals get credit for being pro-immigrant, and conservatives uh, the blame for not being pro-immigrant. And that's not always true. In fact, if you open the Washington Post today, you will see uh, the latest uh, labor groups coming out against the Comprehensive Immigration Bill. And if you look historically, you will find that the one group that has been most militantly anti-immigration, most overtly racist in their opposition to immigration, it was traditionally the labor unions. And I think they still harbor a, a tremendous amount of, of nativism. Similarly, um, Republicans often get a bad reputation that is undeserved because business groups have traditionally and very much today been at the forefront of immigration reform and pro-business Republicans, in, even in Arizona, um, are full-throatedly pro-immigration. Barack Obama uh, ran into tremendous danger because Barack Obama, you may recall, when he ran for president the first time, 
promised that in his first year of office he would deal with comprehensive immigration reform. He utterly came up empty, and Hispanic voters uh, were very, very angry. It's, it, now when you see the Hispanic support for, for Obama, it's hard to believe that a year and a half before the election they were out to get him. And he read that, he understood that, and so what he failed to do in the legislative arena, he did by executive action, by uh, creating uh, the DREAM Act through, uh, through executive fiat. So some of the characterizations are, are simply not, uh, not accurate, and yet in politics, perception is reality. Now in Arizona, um, the opposition to immigration is very, very deeply seated, and I did not realize this till I started doing my own uh, research, and I discovered a, a book that I talk about in, in my introduction to the book uh, called The Great Arizona uh, Orphan Abduction. And it talked about uh, some orphans that were sent to Arizona in the late 1800s, and they were sent to uh, some mining communities to be adopted. And the only Catholics, uh, it was a Catholic orphanage, and the only Catholics in this community were uh, Mexicans. And so the orphans, who were Irish orphans, were placed um, with um, Mexican families. This so incited the white uh, uh, Americans who were living there, that they went to each of these homes and seized the kids at gunpoint through vigilantes and replaced them in white homes. And um, this issue went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which shamefully approved the abductions. This is all the way back in the 1800s. Basically, nothing has changed in Arizona. Um, so, so many of, of the uh, white people who live in Arizona look at Mexican immigrants as, as people who are, uh, who are interlopers, even though they have lived in Arizona, many of them for 150 years, um, and people who go on welfare and so forth. And the fans are flamed by demagogues like Joe Arpaio who uh, himself was not anti-immigrant uh, and until he discovered the, the political salience of, of going after immigrants and, and now obviously has become a national celebrity for, for doing so. Having said all of that, um, there have been a lot of Republicans who have resisted this. For, the, for quite a while, they were losing uh, primary after primary if they were not virulently anti immigration, um, but that has changed. And, and you're probably familiar with um, Senator Russell Pierce, uh, the author of SB 1070, losing a primary. Uh, Jeff Flake, uh, traditionally um, uh, uh, moderate on immigration, being elected despite having a, a primary opponent who, who was very anti-immigration uh, reform. And uh, as these victories occur, Arizonans are finally, I think, shedding this identity and, um, I, and, and being more moderate on the issue. I'm very happy that uh, two-eighths of the gang of eight are from Arizona, and our House delegation is becoming more, uh, more moderate on the issue as well. I think... What basic, what really happened was that November 
of, of 2012 was a huge wake-up call to Republicans and, and basically said, sure, you can be anti-immigration and you can also never win the presidency again. And you can lose, as, as Republicans did in Arizona, a majority of your House seats. And you can see your state turn blue. Or you can begin reaching out to people who share a lot of your, a, a lot of your values. So we have seen this change in Arizona begin to happen, and I'm hopeful that it will be a change that will reverberate uh, around the United States. Right. Uh, Ilya. Ilya, I would never hear you were it not for the microphone. <laughs> Uh, Ilya Shapiro from Cato. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, coming here. Clint and I joke that whenever he comes to Washington, I seem to be in Phoenix and, and vice versa. So I'm glad that the snowmageddon happened to force you to come here again. Um, Congratulations on your recent marriage. Thank you. Thank you. The first one ever at Cato. So, uh, Like most couples, we're waiting for the end of the Supreme Court term to go on honeymoon. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, when I give talks around the country on immigration, um, uh, even in... Uh, border areas, Texas, Arizona, what have you, I, I encounter uh, not just you know, so-called crazies. I do encounter reasonable skeptics. And they say, look, even if I accept what you're saying about uh, economic benefits and it's good for the country and the chicken plants in Arkansas and the workers in, you know, here and there, whatever, you know, what about those ranchers on the border? What about uh, the drug gangs that are infiltrating uh, El Paso? What about the kidnappings in Phoenix, you know, the, the hub in North America for uh, international sex trafficking, uh, these sorts of things? Is it, you know, is it a matter of uh, uh, channeling welfare state resources so that the overburdened ERs and schools in the border states and counties get more? Or how do you solve the kind of, okay, we accept your national solution, but there are real problems at the border? Oh, I think there are real problems at the border. One, one reason for those problems, uh, and, and again, this will not be unfamiliar to a Cato Institute, is when you make things illegal, they are driven into the black market. So in order to get into the country, you have to hire uh, uh, a, uh, a coyote. Uh, the coyotes are now linked with drug cartels. So this has become a, a very, very big cross-border um, uh, criminal issue. And the, uh, the proper approach to that, like in so many areas, is to decriminalize it. Now, one of the um, biggest costs associated with, um, with immigration is education. And it's a perverse byproduct of SB 1070 and other similar measures that people who used to cross the border to work and then would return back home no longer were able to do so because we tighten up the border so much. Um, a lot of these people would come over to work. Their families would remain back in Mexico. So when the border was more secure, was, was more uh, securely secured, um, you had a situation where these workers had to make a choice, either stay on the Mexico side of the border with their families or bring their families into the United States. A lot, a lot of them made b both of those choices. But we suddenly ended up with a lot of families on the American side of the border uh, that wouldn't have been there uh, if there was a system of simply allowing uh, for, for work. 
Um, and that increasingly taxed our education system and our healthcare system. So um, what I think that the proper approach is, is to create a legal system, the guest worker system in particular, um, would be absolutely essential in doing this, that encourages people to come here to work and discourages the, uh, the use of social welfare. Um, that eliminates a lot of the secondary crime that is associated with, uh, with immigration. Uh, it basically gets the main benefits of immigration, which are young workers coming into our society, and it reduces the social welfare costs. I think that the Gang of Eight bill, by and large, gets that equation right. And again, if we uh, conservatives um, can improve the bill by increasing the number of guest workers who are allowed in and further tamping down on, on the social welfare benefits. Uh, first row right here. Yeah. Lady. Hi, Elizabeth Graham. I am an independent consultant. Um, I actually wanted to ask about the guest worker program. How does that differ from the program that I came in under, which was a TN1? Which and TN1, TNAFTA, I'm Canadian. And which so, so I came in as able to work in the United States and eligible to stand in line for a green card, which I now have. So how does someone, in, in, the, in what you're proposing, who comes in under a guest worker program differ functionally from someone who comes in under a work visa? Is it that the guest worker can never get in line for a green card, and the person who comes in under a work visa can? And what are the implications of that? Under, under the gang of, of eight bill, the guest worker program does not have a path to citizenship. Um, but it is more flexible than the guest worker program in the past. And by the way, Alex, if I'm wrong on any of these particulars, feel free to, to correct me. Um, in that it's more flexible. You can leave one employer and, and work uh, with another. And it's a three-year renewable uh, system. Now, suppose you are in this guest worker program and you do want to apply for citizenship. Your employment in the United States would count as a plus factor in the merit-based immigration system that I, that I mentioned. So these things all kind of work uh, uh, in, in interlocking fashion. But someone who gets a regular work visa, like the high-skilled uh, visas that, that uh, will be increased under the bill, they do uh, have entitlement to a, a green card over time. Uh, Jim, right here in the middle. Thanks. Uh, uh, a point of information for the audience's benefit mostly, your first questioner, Ilya Shapiro here at Cato, uh, is an immigrant. And uh, like so many immigrants, he does work Americans won't do. He defends the Constitution. <laughs> well that, said. That is, that's Ilya, that's... <laughs> Ilya's line, but it's so good. I thought it should be repeated here. And he um, left it unsaid, so it was there for the. Thank you the for thing. your. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation in particular. I, I, I like what you said about the role of immigrants in society. Thanks, uh, and and I, 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 for one, grew up in a home that taught me prejudice, 
uh, the prejudice my father taught, uh, having grown up in Bakersfield, California, and Douglas, Arizona, was that Mexicans are nicer than most people. <laughs> Sometimes prejudices are right. <laughs> I haven't read the whole, the whole book, uh, but but uh, I, I work with Alex on on immigration issues and and E-Verify in particular is my area, and I I was able to using technology, pick through the book and find one reference to it at least, and there may be others. Uh, but you say at one point that the immigration agency should be empowered to use whatever technology it deems appropriate to maximize adherence to the law, such as E-Verify, which checks identification against federal databases, uh, the E-Verify program. And um, I wonder if that might be a rather broad delegation of authority. Uh, but more to the point, if if the immigration agency were to decide that we needed a national ID for citizens to carry in order to administer internal enforcement, is that something you would uh, you would support? You know, I'm not even sure that we would have written what we wrote in light of what's happened over the last six weeks. Um, but I would say no to the national identification card. I think that it is appropriate and necessary to know who is in our country. And through that, as a result of that, I think that a, a biometric identification card is appropriate for, for foreign nationals. Um, but I don't think that you gain um, much, if anything, by, by adding a, a national identification card. And, um, you know, if, if Cato has ever had a vindication period um, for a lot of its uh, philosophy and concerns the last six weeks or so certainly have, have, have been it in spades. So, um, uh, so I, 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 I think that uh, I, I would not go further at all than the proposals that we made in the book. And by the way, just a, a quick personal anecdote. You mentioned that, that your, your dad was, was prejudiced, as, as was mine. But it was ironic, and I, I do talk about this in the introduction as well. Um, my dad was a, a welder, had an eighth grade education, worked with his hands his entire life. And my first exposure to immigrants was when I went to law school at Davis and met um, I worked in a convenience store at night and encountered farm workers coming in. And their hands were the first hands that I ever saw that resembled my dad's. You know, calloused, dirt-caked fingernails. And that was really an epiphany for me because I had heard from my dad and from my mom about immigrants. And I thought, I looked at these men's hands and I said, that's not true. These men work ju just like my dad worked. And they work for the same reason that my dad worked so hard, which was to get me an opportunity that was better than, than he had. So ironically, my dad, though prejudiced, taught me uh, to, uh, to value immigrants. Gentleman over here. Hi, J.C. Derrick with World Magazine. Um, Congressman Raul Labrador joined an existing House group uh, that was had been going nowhere. And w according to him, one of the reasons he did so was because Democrats agreed that any legalization, whether that be a path to legalization or full citizenship, would include illegal immigrants paying for their own health insurance. Yes. He recently dropped out of the group because he said Democrats had reneged on that promise. So I'm just curious about how you see the whole Affordable Care Act issue coming down uh, in both the Senate and the House. Um, I, uh, 
I think I, I was surprised um, to hear that the House gang <laughs> had somehow, at least according to Labrador, ended up to the left of where the Senate was on that issue. And um, I, so far as I know, the details of the House gang's bill have, ne have never been released. Am I right about that? Uh, most, no, they, they have not been released. Yeah. So I don't, I can't really say wh whether Labrador's uh, concerns were valid or what the trade-offs were, but I was very surprised and disappointed to hear that that, that had happened. I can't imagine that a bill will be passed by the House and the Senate that will include eligibility for Obamacare for the provisional um, status. Um, and uh, I, I hope that Labrador returns to the process. He's one of the few Republican representatives who knows very much about immigration law. And so his loss was great, but I think his view will, will ultimately be vindicated. And I want to follow up on that just with a second question because it's such a, a great question. One of the uh, disagreements was that a lot of the Republicans wanted legalized immigrants to have to purchase private health insurance as a condition of their legalization. Now, you're a conserv uh, free market conservative lawyer. Um, you are no doubt aware of a lot of the great work that we've done on Obamacare and the ACA. What do you think about that? Well, you know, it, it really does present present a conundrum because under current federal law, um, even illegal immigrants are entitled to two types of public services, public education and emergency room treatment. We could not come up with a worse system for providing health care for immigrants, or especially illegal immigrants, than having them go to the emergency room for routine purposes. It is one of the things that states have complained about that is utterly and totally legitimate. And I, I, uh, we actually advocated in the book getting rid of that uh, requirement and allowing states to provide uh, health insurance in a less, uh, a less costly way. Um, I, so I don't know where the, where the, the balance is on that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, we did not address that, that specific that specific issue, but uh, certainly um, eligibility for, for, for emergency medical care um, as a mandate to the states should be eliminated. Um, ultimately, I think the issue is going to go away because the Cato Institute and the Goldwater Institute are going to get rid of Obamacare. Amen. See, so, uh, right here in the middle. By the way, Goldwater is often referred to as Cato West, and we are so proud of that that we've taken to calling Cato Goldwater East. <laughs> uh, Bernie Gonzalez. Bernie. The issue of path to citizenship, is that more important to the politicians themselves, <laughs> or are, would immigrants object greatly to having that eliminated as an issue as long as they could remain here and work and have their children born in the U.S. be citizens and continue the family? I, Bernie, that is a great question. I don't know for sure the answer to that question. I haven't seen polling of 
illegal immigrants on that issue. Have you ever seen polling on that? Not too much, no. However, even in the 1986 amnesty, um, vast numbers, something like half of those who were eligible for citizenship did not pursue citizenship. So my instinct is that those who are here illegally, they know they're here illegally, and they know they broke a law. They made a judgment to do that for, for betterment of their family, for economic opportunities, and so forth. I think that, by and large, they would be perfectly satisfied with permanent legal status for the most part. Um, so it really is the politicians that I think that, it, that are driving this. I think it's a very, very astute, astute question. And, and when Jeb and I, we struggled with that more than any other part of the book. And um, we thought that, that our permanent legal residence uh, proposal was, was the, right, uh, the right balance under all of the circumstances. And frankly, I think if that, that was it, um, it would just be a cause to rejoice uh, among those who are here. And I'll, I'll add one quick thing onto that. I mean, I, I, Cato, I am in favor of a path to citizenship for those who are, uh, would be legalized under this, this program. But it's definitely a combination not only of just politicians, but a lot of interest groups that are in favor of legalization, a lot of uh, ethnic-based interest groups as well who favor this. Now, uh, Ruben Navarretta, who's a great columnist for CNN, and um, his columns run across the country, he writes, you know, the most important document that one of these legalized people could have is a work permit. The second most important is a driver's license. And way down the line is voter ID card, okay? It's not that important to the everyday life of people. I vote once every couple years when I feel like it. Um, I, however, use my driver's license just about every day uh, to drive. Um, if I didn't have a social security card, I wouldn't be able to work, and I work just about every day. So if you think about the documents that are important to people and living their lives and being free and being able to participate in America, because we have so many different, the state is so involved in determining who can participate and who can't based on uh, ID and, and documents and stuff like that, Voter ID and citizenship documents are way down the line of importance. And I think Michael Clemens, an economist from uh, the Center for Global Development, says it most importantly. If you're concerned about the welfare of these people, of their economic well-being, both people who want to come here and become Americans and those who are here now, the work permit is by far more important than all this other stuff combined. So, um, uh, gentlemen back there in the corner. I'm Doug Herbert. I'm really not affiliated with anybody. Uh, I have, however, taught English to immigrants uh, on the weekends as a volunteer for the last 20 years. And I uh, want to make a comment that I, I agree with your instinct. I'm sorry, can you please hold the microphone a little closer? It's hard for me. Um, I would agree with your comment that most immigrants, illegal immigrants, really don't care much about citizenship for themselves, but they care a whole lot about citizenship for their children. Yeah. And so any bill that doesn't have that in there, most of them are motivated by their children. I have a clarification question for you. In your book, you propose that illegal immigrants could return to their home country and apply for citizenship. Would you require that they remain resident in their home country while that application is pending? Um, you know, we didn't get down to that level of detail, so I can't really, I, I can't really cl clarify that for you. Um, I, I would not think that there would be any reason to, do, to require that they remain there. But I, I totally agree on the emphasis on citizenship for the kids. And fortunately, I, I think the two, if the bill goes down, 
if the comprehensive bill goes down, I still think that we will see a, a DREAM Act and we'll see some improvement on the high-skill visa parts. Um, and of course, Obama did, you know, to some extent, the DREAM Act uh, by executive order. So uh, at the very least, I think that we will see um, positive change in, in those areas. And I think we have time for about one more question. Um, the gentleman right here in the middle. Um, right there. Yeah. I'm Terrence Byrne. I'm retired from the Department of State. But I have a question of personal curiosity. How did you and Jeb Bush share the work on this book, Mr. Bonnock? Um, basically, um, I wrote the first draft of, of each of the chapters, and Jeb weighed in heavily on, uh, uh, on a number of, of ideas. Well, actually, I should say we talked it through first. I wrote the first draft, and then, and then he weighed in. I mentioned uh, I spoke at, at uh, the Bradley Foundation event uh, this morning and mentioned all of the economics in the book came from Jeb. Um, the uh, the importance of uh, of immigrants to um, uh, to economic productivity in the United States and that sort of stuff. I, you know, did research to back up what he was saying, but um, um, so uh, so ultimately, it turned out to be a, a very very true collaboration. And uh, I read parts of the book and smile because I can hear Jeb saying saying the things that that are in there. Sorry, that was such a quick uh, question and answer. We actually have time for one more, just one more question. And I think um, first row here, Roger. Uh, Thank you, Alex. I had Roger Pilon. a forum without getting a question. Uh, Roger <laughs> no such luck, huh? No such luck. Uh, the, uh, if it's, it's my understanding that about a third of those who are here illegally uh, came in legally but overstayed their visas. It's actually well, higher than that. It is higher yes. than a third, I see. We think of it as people who've come across the border, but right. that's the little-known part of the uh, equation. What do you and what does this bill uh, have to say about that issue? Well, uh, we think that it's it's very important. This gets back to my point of knowing who is here and... Um, knowing who has left. So at the very least, if people have overstayed their visas, you know that they have done that and you can look for them. Um, and this bill moves us in the direction of, of, um, uh, of knowing uh, who is here through biometric identification. A lot of the amendments that are being offered right now focus more on that, on that issue. So. The bill doesn't move us as far as Jeb and I would would move us um, in that direction, uh, but but it does start us on that road.